Hello and welcome to Switzer TV Investing. I'm Peter Switzer. And with the stock market having second thoughts about the huge rally which we've seen over the last three or four weeks, tonight we look at four small cap stocks for the speculators with Berman Invest Julia Lee. And then Paul Ricard looks at five income stocks that aren't the banks and Telstra. And then we catch up with the CEO of Pingana Capital, Russell Pilmer, about two of his funds that have been really pretty good performers during this very challenging coronavirus crash times. We ask the question, why a stock supported by Bill Gates has seen its share price fall substantially? We do this with the CEO of the company, John Kelly of Atomo Diagnostics. And then Charlie Aiken will give us a fund manager's perspective on this second wave sell-off of the stock market right now. So without any further ado, let's cross to Julia Lee of Berman Invest. Well, as always, we kick off the show with the wonderful Julia Lee from Berman Invest. And uh, Julia, before we look at some really interesting smaller cap stocks, I'd like to talk to you today about what went on in the market. And, and, and it kind of started off okay, but gee, it got a bit negative towards the end. What's driving it? There's a couple of factors which influence the market today, and it was quite a big sell-off. The market lost more than 2%. Every single sector was trading down lower, and the energy and the consumer discretionary sectors lost more than 3%. First of all, I think the run-up that we've seen from March has been a pretty big one. The market's up about 40% from the lows up to the highs, so we were due for a pullback. Now, the market's selling off on concerns of a second wave. We've seen more cases coming out of Beijing and now from Japan as well, so that's second wave certainly coming into play but it was the numbers coming out of China which saw the markets taking another leg down and we saw industrial production retail sales as well as fixed asset investment numbers for March in terms of these numbers they were weaker than expected but industrial production did bounce back from a contraction that we saw in February but concerning is domestic domestic consumption in China, where it is still shrinking. And for China, with most of the world in recession, domestic consumption is really important to its growth story at the moment. So it does look like it's going to be a more difficult path to recovery for China, given that we haven't really seen domestic consumption kicking in and also fears of the economic impact of a second wave as more cases are diagnosed in Beijing. And I guess, Julia, if the second wave concerns are not as bad as we expect eventually. This, this sell-off could be a buying opportunity for some of the stocks that you missed out on the first leg up. Yeah, I find it funny that we're talking about a second wave when a lot of the world is still uh, trying to combat first wave. So, you know, the US, Brazil, India still in the first wave. But I guess the difference between now and January is that we know a little bit more about COVID-19. We know how to contact trace, use technology to try and contain the disease. So hopefully the second wave won't see as big an economic impact. So we won't see huge all country type of lockdowns, but perhaps area lockdowns instead, depending on where the cases pop up. And we've been seeing that here in Australia, where schools that have a COVID-19 case diagnosed have been shutting down, but it's not all schools, so it's a case-by-case -case basis. So we have more information, which makes the second wave hopefully less of an economic impact than the first wave. Yes. All conflicts in the world teach us to become better at handling conflicts <laughs> in the world. All right, so the next up, 
We had a viewer question from our exclusive Boom, Doom and Zoom webinar that we hold for our subscribers of the Switzer Report. Now this question seemed to be of great interest to our subscribers, so we thought we'd pose this uh, question to Julia. I actually said at, at the time during the show that I, I didn't know about this stock, but I'm sure Julia Lee would. And so this question comes courtesy of Craig. So take it away, Craig. Yeah, yeah Peter, um, NXS, Next Science. What, just your thoughts on it? Okay, so it goes Craig asking about Next Science. Julia, what do you think of this company? Well, Next Science is uh, more of a speculative company, and that's because it's not bringing in a significant amount of revenue. It's a great story, though. It's all about wound cleansing, so uh, before operations and after operations, um, and looking at trying to combat things like uh, resistant staph infections, mm. E. coli, or any other infection that you can get on the operating table. But it has greater uses as well. Um, I guess in nursing homes, when people aren't as mobile, they tend to get quite large sores. So using uh, wound cleansing in that type of scenario as well. I think the reason why this one gained a lot of popularity after its initial public offering, which was at $1, is because Lang Walker, I think, owns around about 40% of the company. And at one point, we saw the shares spiking above $4. Today, I think the shares traded at about $1.25. So look, I do think it's more of a speculative and early stage investment. I tend to go for companies that are a bit more later stage and a bit bigger but certainly if you're backing this wound care story, it's a huge potential market. I would just be tracking the revenue numbers because they're not huge in comparison to the market cap. And you really need to start to see that distribution ramping up. Mm. Now, Craig actually threw a, a couple of curveball com companies at us last week. So I'm going to throw them at you, see if you can hit them out of the park, Julia. One is uh, AMX, that's Aerometrics. Look, I think this is a relatively new company to the market. I think it looks at aerial mapping, um, and I think it, it IPO'd back in December 2019. So it was a pretty difficult time for a company to be joining the market. Um, the key here is that, once again, it, it is a new one to the market, so we want to see some good growth rates come through. And I suspect with COVID-19, there could have been some impacts. However, you'd think with the impact of COVID-19, it accelerate the need for things like aerial mapping so that people physically didn't have to go and um, visit areas. And we've seen a similar story, I guess, coming out of Near Maps, which has been hugely successful from councils not having to visit houses and instead being able to look at these intensely detailed um, maps. So, look, I think it's an interesting one, one to watch. It's probably still a little bit too new for me, and I'd prefer a Near Maps, which has a bit more history and you can see the, the growth profile a lot more clearly than something relatively new to the market. Um, so I think new companies like this are all about intimately understanding the story and where the growth is going to come from. Another one, I love the name of this one, Wee Bit Nano. <laughs> Look, I, I have to tell you the nano. truth, Pete, I didn't know this one and it's <laughs> only got a $12 million market cap. So look, yeah. a small company like this, pretty difficult to get in and out of. So you have to be a real backer of the story. From what I can understand, the area of 
uh, computer memory is a huge area and it's an area that needs change because of the amount and the size of things that we're processing and the traditional area which is flash memory it's not big enough so something else has to replace it we just don't know what it is yet so there's a number of companies working on the next I guess generation memory model and this is one of those companies unfortunately for this company which is based out of Melbourne and is relatively tiny um, there are huge companies working on this problem at the moment, which means it's up against some pretty tough competition. Um, so you probably want to see uh, a big backer either coming into partner or being able to develop its technology and they're probably looking to on-sell it. But look, I think it's a pretty competitive area and I'd probably be sticking clear of this one unless you really believe in the technology because I think there definitely needs to be a new generation memory. It's just that it's such a competitive space with some pretty big players working on the problem at the moment. That's good analysis, Julia. The one I suspect you will like is uh, Points Bet Holdings, PBH. Yeah, this one's really benefited from the COVID-19 lockdowns and basically it's cloud gambling. What we've seen during lockdown is a lot of the traditional areas for gambling like football have been shut down, but one of the areas that have, hasn't been shut down has been racing. So the fact that you are seeing bricks and mortar TAB type of um, shops uh, being closed down means that there's been a bigger migration to online gambling and in particular uh, wagering and things like racing. So look, PointsBet has benefited from that. And what we saw during the uh, global financial crisis is that some trends came into play. For example, People, instead of shopping at the more premium grocery stores, would shop more at Walmart. But what you found after the global financial crisis is that the customers they gained remained relatively sticky, so they stayed on board. So PointsBet during the COVID-19 crisis has managed to bring on a whole heap of new clients, and that's really accelerated its, uh, its growth potential. And the good news is that those clients are probably going to be relatively sticky, really just accelerating that cash flow that you expected in one or two years' time to now. So, look, I think points bet, uh, sticky acquisitions and just accelerating that growth trajectory during this lockdown. So I, I like points bet. Is points bet a rival to NEDS and sports bet and TAB? Look, I guess the, the main competitor there is uh, Tabcorp, uh, TAB. And if you have a look at TAB, it's mostly bricks and mortar store, uh, stores. And I guess traditionally gaming has been quite a social event. You do it with your friends and you talk yeah. about it. Um, and so there's a social entertainment entertainment type of quality to gambling, especially here in Australia. Um, but the fact that it is moving online means that gaming is still social. It's just being done through text and through other forms of communication. Mm -hmm. So I do think that there's still that social aspect of it. But like many other aspects of our lives, the social aspect is actually online as well. So look, I think PointsBet is going to continue mm -hmm. to benefit from that migration to yeah. online. We're all living a virtual life nowadays, aren't we, Julia? <laughs> One last thing, is there any other stock that you like this week that's come out of the blue and said, this is going to be a Julia Lee destroyer? Well, uh, just to blend my own horn for a second, I guess today was a horrible day on the market, but our portfolio actually held four out of the five top performers in the ASX 200. So we've done well on Helios today, Boral, Monodelphus, NextDC, all doing well. Um, I guess just having a look at some interesting companies. And one of the things that I like to look at is the rebalancing of the benchmark index, because I know that additions to this index usually have a wider audience and a bit of buying power coming through. So one of the ones that 
that I like and that I have is Omni Bridgeway. Um, this is the old IMF Bantham. So looking at financing class actions. And I don't know about you, Pete, but <laughs> there seems to be a lot more class actions. And it's not my imagination because the last update that we saw from Omni Bridgeway was that uh, the number of funding applications to March was actually up by 18% year on year. So they are seeing strong rates of growth there. And look, one of their updates said that they had considered 974 applications and they only picked 37 out of those. So they get to pick the cream of the crop and then they had a success rate of 89%. And to give you an idea of some of the internal rates of returns that they have when they're laying out capital, for example, uh, the Murray-Goldwyn case, there was an internal rate of return on a cash basis of just under 400%. And with the Bellamy's class action, it was just over 100%. So mm. there can be some pretty attractive rates of return in terms of this one. It is a global company, 18 offices around the globe, but really most of its revenue comes from Australia and the US. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Pete. Julia Lee from Berman Invest. Well, responding to uh, a letter from one of our viewers, uh, Paul Rickard has actually gone searching for five income stocks, which aren't your conventional income stocks. Paul, there's a criteria you used. Well, first of all, Peter, we get lots of letters, and um, I guess it's no surprise that people are pretty full on banks. They're full no. on Telstra. Uh, property trusts have had their day a little bit, and so uh, the question is, where can you get income? Yeah. Uh, particularly without taking all, all the letter, correspondent actually said, no risk. And I said, well, of course, there's always some, some risk. risk. Yeah. So uh, look, I went searching um, on a couple of criteria. I said no banks or Telstra. So let's, yeah. everyone's got those. Yeah. So we, we know about that. I, I eliminated all the resource company stocks, Peter. That's not because there aren't some great uh, dividend payers, dividend payers at the moment. resource companies. But remember that resource companies is that they are price takers. In mm. other words, they have no control about the revenue they earn. So yeah. uh, and they can just cut out the dividend, can't they? Yeah, and and, and if, if commodity prices fall, you know, obviously you're going to end up with no no income at all. Mm. So mm. We, we eliminated all the resource stocks, uh, made them in the top 150, and of course my correspondent wanted yields over four percent and fully frank. She's that was a little easier. That was a little easier a few years ago. So they're not all fully frank, but uh, the yields aren't too bad. So um, mm. that's how I went looking for them. Okay, kick off the first one, Paul. Yeah, the one other thing across different sectors. So there's a little bit of diversification. Yeah, good. Uh, the first is APA, which is the uh, the pipeline company. Uh, now looking to expand in the US, which I think is probably a positive, but it's mm. uh, it's got a good portfolio of gas assets in Australia. Uh, not fully franked, it's only about 35% franked, but it's going up mm. uh, and the yield's well over 4%. So, uh, and very solid, very defensive, Peter, and um, recently reconfirmed guidance, which is okay. the most important thing. Your second one here is Horizon. Now, Horizon used to have another name. What was the other name? Horizon used the old uh, Queensland National Rail. It was privatised, I think, about six or seven years ago. Mm. Um, and uh, it became something else and then became Horizon, I think, Peter. I think that's the long story. Yeah. So this is the old haulage business of, of coal in Queensland. Yeah. Uh, it's expanded through acquisitions. It's now very, very dominant in, the, in WA, so it's involved in, in the Pilbara. It's also quite big in New South Wales. So it's really a logistics hauler of coal, iron ore and other bulk commodities. Mm. Now, normally um, you'd say there's a bit of commodity price risk. It's not exposed to the commodity price, it's obviously exposed to volume risk, but they're saying that so far that uh, coal 
exports from Australia have still been pretty strong. Yeah. We haven't really seen the impact of, uh, of COVID-19. They've recently reconfirmed guidance, yielding over 5%, and the franking's getting way up there, so it's about 70%. So a bit of a surprise for me, Peter, but I think that's more your traditional yeah. you know, logistics transport company and um, pretty boring business in yeah. a way, but... Uh, but it's paying a reasonably yep. good dividend, exciting dividend in the modern context. The next one is, is an exciting business, JB Hi-Fi. Yeah, one of my favourite stocks, Pat. If you read the Switzer Report, you'll see why it's one of my, my favourite mm. stocks. Uh, you just look at what they've done over the years. Um, recently, again, uh, had great sales as a result of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, dividend keeps on going up every year. This is fully franked. Um, only concern about this is, is it too expensive, you know, because yeah. it's had such a great run. But uh, I think this is a really good stock for all portfolios. This is a stock that you, you fall in and out of love with, Medibank Private. Yeah, I do a little bit, and that's because you've got to think about the, um, the health insurance industry. Mm. Uh, I wasn't a big fan of Medibank Private initially because despite, um, a lot of people put it, first of all, put it down as a health stock. It's not, it's really an, a financial insurance stock, stock, insurance yeah. stock. Mm. And secondly, um, it has been hemorrhaging customers. now. Uh, it's almost turned that around. So it's got two brands. Peter, it's got the Medibank brand that I think everyone knows about. Mm. That's the premium brand. Mm. It also owns the AHM brand, which is sort of the, the discount insurance brand. AHM has been growing. Medibank, the traditional brand, has been falling, but they've almost stopped that. So it's almost got positive market share, which I think is a big achievement for the biggest mm. in our field. And um, look, I think it's pretty solid. Look, mm. um, there's a lot of negatives in the industry, but it's it's probably one of the most boring mm. stock you'll find. One thing I'll say about Paul Rickard, ladies and gentlemen, is that he's a safe pair of hands. And looking at these stocks, he hasn't really come, f gone looking for really scary stocks that could let you down. Final one, Woolworths. Yeah, look, I, I had to have a supermarket in there. It was either Woolworths or Coles. It's a question of relativities between mm. the two. You could have put Coles in there. I've gone for Woolworths because it's been sold off a little bit recently. Uh, so, the, you know, again, we all know what's going on with Woolies, mm -hmm. you know, the, the uh, cash flow is really strong, it's a great business. The supermarket wars, they've turned down a little bit, they've eased. Well, the Germans are leaving, Yeah, the Ger they? well, uh, Kaufland uh, went, went back home. So mm -hmm. some of the pressure has gone in the industry and that's allowed them to increase margins a bit. Uh, it's actually, if you actually look at the market the last six weeks, but it's actually gone well, a lot of stocks have gone up in price. Woolworths has gone backwards. Yeah. But I mean, it boomed at the beginning of the coronavirus, It boomed at the beginning, and then the market realised that actually, you know, sure, we, it was getting all the extra sales growth, mm. but a lot of extra costs because mm. of all the, uh, mm. the way it had to look after customers. So, look, my criteria for Woolworths, mm. or you could throw coals in there, Peter, is a pretty safe pair of hands. Mm. I would describe it as pretty low risk. It's not going to shoot the lights out, but uh, for an income yeah. stock, I think that's what you want. So for, for an older investor, which I, I, I suspect this uh, investor was, th these give income. I think for a younger investor, they become like a solid base when you're investing. They might not shoot the lights out in terms of capital gain, but they'll have capital gain, but there's nice, reliable income. And what... What do you think it'll be? What kind of percentage do you think they'll yeah, roughly I, work out? Yeah, overall it'll be about 4%. Yeah. Um, and I think that's Plus okay. franking? Or plus, plus, plus franking. Well, so that increases yep, up to yep. over 5, yep. doesn't it? And uh, again, look, I think what's important is you say, I think the, the, the key point you made there, Peter, is that um, for me, they've also, companies are still growing. Yeah. And if they, if they can grow in the, and the, and each of these companies has had increasing dividends, yeah. uh, if they can continue to do that, their share price should also enjoy some sort of rise. Mm. And if the market gets sold off, they're going to hang on all right because everyone knows that they're pretty low volatile, they're mm. pretty secure. They've all got strong balance sheets. Yep. Uh, and, uh, you know, you can think of them as pretty reliable income producers. Yeah. And I guess if someone put those five 
with the banks and Telstra, that's 10 pretty good income paying stocks, whether you like them or not. For people who want that kind of security in their portfolio, not a bad idea. Of course, it's not advice, Paul. It's just our financial education. Well, it's brilliant. It's brilliant financial something rather, oh. Peter. And of course, uh, that's available to our Switzer sub, sub, sub Report subscribers. So, yeah. Uh, so if, you, if you're not a subscriber, you can just take a, a free 21-day trial and see the analysis, the analysis that Paul has got there, as well as some of the other stories in the report today. Well, the coronavirus has challenged a lot of companies and of course, ha happily a lot of those companies have seen their share price or their unit price come back. The company's been doing pretty well during this tough time as Pangana uh, with the CEO of the company, Russell Pillman. Russell, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Mate, let's talk about a few things. Um, PIA, this is the, the, the Pangana International Equities uh, Limited Fund. Uh, tell us what's going on there. So Peter, we've had a fantastic uh, performance period. Uh, during uh, and over COVID, we generated positive returns for our investors, which yep. was uh, particularly uh, pleasing to us and, and for our investors. But we also implemented a change uh, that I think is uh, groundbreaking in the industry uh, when it comes to listed investment mm -hmm. uh, companies and trusts. Mm -hmm. And this change is as follows. We've, we've altered our mandate um, so that we will be trying to generate fully frank dividends uh, for our investors. Right. Now, we always had a mandate to generate uh, a, a, a strong um, a, a strong dividends, but they weren't necessarily fully, fully franked. Yeah. So we've changed that mandate, um, and I think it's, uh, it's a really important move because in this environment, um, investors we found are desperate for fully frank dividends. Hmm. Uh, you'll know, uh, no doubt your, your listeners will be um, aware of the fact that a lot of the banks, the infrastructure plays, et cetera, et cetera, have pulled back on their dividends, yeah. and there's a real shortage in the, in the market at the moment. Mm. Um, PIA generates its dividends in a very different way. So um, there's two things really here to focus on. One is how you generate the dividends, mm. and number two is how you generate fully frank dividends. Okay, and I think the thing is that a lot of people might not understand, they know a lot of funds have fully frank dividends, but this is an international fund. And one of the things that international funds historically don't have are frank dividends because well, they're not paying tax here in Australia. So tell us how you've been able to do this. Uh, um, um, ab absolutely, Peter. So firstly, when it comes to actually paying dividends, mm. um, all that we need is to have cash in the portfolio. Mm. Uh, there's no other restrictions. So um, uh, our portfolio is very liquid. We invest in larger stocks, uh, which means that we can sell them at any point in time and have cash to pay dividends. Right. This is different to something like a bank, which has capital requirements and so mm. can't yeah. pay dividends, et cetera. So we, we deal with that part of the, the question uh, uh, easily. The second part is in order to pay fully frank dividends, there are two tests that you need to, um, uh, to, uh, uh, pass. to, to pass. Uh, the first of these tests is that um, you either need to generate a profit in a period or alternatively have accumulated profit reserves mm. in order to pay fully frank dividends. Mm. Now, generating profits in a period for a listed investment company is uh, not a foregone conclusion because markets can go up and down, yeah. et cetera. Mm -hmm. However, we are in this particularly strong position that we have a lot of um, these built up reserves over time. We could pay out fully frank dividends for sev several years mm -hmm. just with these reserves. So that's the first element of the test uh, that we pass very easily. The second element of the test is that you need to um, pay tax 
um, and generate um, franking credits. Mm. The way you pay tax as an international um, uh, LRC is by realizing gains. So when you when you sell your stocks and you realize gains, uh, you pay tax. Just like any Australian who might have bought Apple shares and made a lot of money, then so ultimately they're going to be taxed. Correct. Yeah. Now we are um, uh, we've changed the mandate, so we're managing the portfolio such that. We will take profits mm. in order to um, do our best to ensure that um, our, that we do pay our tax and are able to so pay fully frank. I'm not suggesting this was the case, but a lot of people would invest this way. I guess people who bought Apple shares in, in a fund could have basically set and forget. But in your case, you're going to you're going to have to manipulate it, basically realise the profit to pay the tax and then to offer the franking credits to people who come in the fund. Yeah, so this is um, naturally how we run our portfolio. So we're not changing it in order to uh, generate, uh, specifically generate a tax outcome, but we find that the, uh, our, our structure um, or our strategy lends itself to this. And this is because we're very disciplined investors. Mm. And when our um, uh, price targets are hit, so we might buy a stock over here and then trades up, to this level, we will sell it. It's not a set and forget okay, portfolio. There, there must be times when you say, oh gee, I wish, I wish we hadn't sold that. Like, it's, you made good money, and then, but some of them really defy logic sometimes, the share price they get to. Yeah, and, and you know, Peter, that's, that's a, a relevant way of investing where people just set, uh, set and forget. Yeah. It's not what we do. No. So as I say, we're very disciplined. Uh, we believe in fundamental value. We believe in cash flow uh, investing. Yep. And when we hit our price targets, we sell. Yep. Now, we're much more likely to sell stocks that go up than sell stocks that go down mm. because we're waiting for, um, for, for the right prices. Yeah, because uh, you, you're suggesting you never make a mistake anyway. All your, all your <laughs> stocks go up. I am joking, by the way. Even he can't claim it, even though he was well taught. <laughs> all right, so that's PIA. Now, you've got another innovation, haven't you? Uh, yes, so um, uh, we have two listed vehicles at Pangana. Mm. Uh, one, one is uh, PIA, the other one is PE1, mm. which is the Pangana Private Equity uh, <coughs> Listed Investment uh, Trust. Mm. Um, this is the only... Went to market last year? Or, or? We went to market a, a year ago. Yep, um, yep. We raised um, just a bit over $200 million uh, in, the, uh, in the IPO. Yep. Um, that's uh, done very well for investors. Um, it's traded, uh, traded very well. Uh, we currently trade a significant premium uh, to um, uh, to the NAV. It's quite rare nowadays because a lot of good funds really did copper smashing during the coronavirus crash. Most of them have seen it come back, but not back to their NTA. You're saying that your one's gone over the NTA. Yes, so we traditionally have traded at a premium uh, yeah. to our NAV and as quite a substantial one, I think driven by uh, a couple of factors. Firstly, private equity is a fantastic place to be investing. Mm. This is global private equity uh, fund, funds. Um, this is the only vehicle uh, in the Australian marketplace whereby you can get access to global uh, private equity funds mm. and very high quality global private equity funds. We've done this in conjunction uh, with a large manager out of the US by the name of Grosvenor. Uh, capital. Yeah. Uh, Grosvenor are a market leader in investing in high quality, small to medium sized private equity funds. Uh, and I remember when you first came on and talked about this, one of the things you, tr you argued was because they're private equity, they're not going to be as market sensitive. Of course, you're on the market, so you can be, but the underlying assets don't have that vulnerability that maybe other funds that have lots of list this um, products inside them, that leaves them more vulnerable to sort of like a mega market sell-off. 
Um, ab absolutely. Mm -hmm. So we, we always know that um, uh, listed equity markets overshoot on the upside, overshoot on the downside, yeah. driven by um, uh, you know how, how investors are feeling on that particular day. Mm. Private equity markets uh, aren't like that. Mm. Uh, prices are usually uh, based upon fundamental values, mm. and so they move. The pricing moves uh, much less uh, uh, to, mu to much less of an extreme mm. than listed markets. But on the day when the market crashed, did did the the PE one um, unit price? fall like everybody else but, but it just recovered quicker yeah so we had uh we had a couple of weeks where we traded um at a discount to our nav when the mm. markets were, were at their depths yeah um uh but and that's, it that, and that's people running for the exits isn't it really Ab absolutely yeah. um uh and and smart investors picking up the stock uh, on those yeah. days yeah. um it recovered very quickly um and um as i say now continues to trade it at a, at a very substantial premium. Mm. Um, I think you know pri private equity is something that in my view and in most academic uh, point of views uh, should be in everybody's portfolios. Private equity is a great asset class. Mm. Um, the problem that most investors have is they just can't access the good stuff. Mm. Um, through PE1 they can. And so that's why there's this continuing demand for PE1. That's why it trades at the premium that it does. Now, is, there's going to be a, a, a new capital raise for this? There, there is, there is, there's a rights issue coming yeah, up okay. um, that we announced last week. So we will be raising additional uh, money for the vehicle mm. um, and um, that will allow our existing investors the opportunity to get more invested. Mm. Uh, private equities does particularly well at this point in the cycle. So Because their assets have been smashed in terms of their value a long way from the, the times when people weren't worried about the coronavirus. Um, absolutely. So the assets have been um, have been smashed. Uh, private equity managers who are well connected, who are sitting there with big checkbooks, mm. have the ability to come into these situations and buy assets yeah. cheaply. Well, and we've seen that with Virgin, haven't we? Like two big private equity firms, or more than two, we're lining up to try and buy that. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So it's a great time for private equity. Um, for investors who um, uh, missed out on the real uptick in the listed equity markets, because it would have been great to have bought back in, in, in March, yeah. but it's probably with a lot of stocks too late now, you're not gonna get those, that, those big gains. Mm. But the private equity world is still very under underpriced in terms of opportunities. Mm. So it's somewhere where people can go into now and hopefully they can generate um, some very uh, healthy returns over the coming years. Mm. Just talking to your investment team, because you know, you. Obviously, with um, PIA, you, you're investing in hopefully quality companies that will do well uh, in the future. What's the feeling about the rebound of the American market in particular? Because you know, I think we got up to about 16% off where we were, which seemed highish. But the Americans got to 5% within it. What's the, the investment team saying to you? Look, we're very cautious about where the markets are at at the moment. Mm. Um, I think there's a lot of optimism built into uh, current stock prices. Mm. But the important thing to note is it's not across the board. So some stocks have rebounded very well and other stocks haven't rebounded mm. um, uh, at all like that. What we found is that the larger, more popular uh, stocks in the marketplace, the FANG stocks mm. um, that, we, that we talk about so, so often, those seem to have just rebounded, no, no opportunity there to, to get those outsized gains. Mm. But as you go down um, to uh, smaller stocks, more unknown stocks, 
uh, or less well-known stocks, um, other geographies, etc. There are pockets of great value uh, to still acquire. So I think you just need to be really active. You need to be able to look around the marketplace, have your tentacles out there, understand companies, be following a lot of companies, and then you're in a position to still get um, some fantastic um, buying opportunities. Okay. But it's not the obvious spaces anymore. And, and do you have uh, your team monitoring the, the possibilities of a second wave infection and, and all that sort of stuff? Or do you rely on outside sources for that kind of yeah. prediction? Yeah, look, we, we don't think that we've got the ability, A, to predict markets and B, to predict the medical mm. situation. I think it's far too complicated. I'm not sure that anybody has that ability. Mm. Um, so what we rely on is looking at our underlying stocks and saying, how will these stocks perform in various environments? Yeah. If the world is a great place again, how will the stocks perform? If there is a second wave, if the first wave continues, et cetera, et cetera, how, that, how will they perform? Mm. And we're looking for those robust stocks that can continue to perform um, irrespective of the environment. Understanding that we think that, you know, in a couple of years time, things will have normalized and the market should be good again, but we want resilient stocks. Okay, Russell, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Peter. Nice That's to Russell Pillamar from Pengana. Thanks for joining us on the program, John. You're welcome. So, John, just for the people who, who aren't in the loop, explain what Atomo Diagnostics does. Yeah, so we're an innovative medical device company and we have a range of integrated uh, rapid blood tests that, that cover a range of infectious diseases, uh, HIV uh, and more recently COVID-19. Okay, so how is the, the progress in uh, assisting the assessment of potential COVID-19 infected people? Yeah, no, I mean, we, we've been uh, very actively focused on COVID-19 for the last couple of months. We announced a partnership with NG Biotech, uh, a leading French manufacturer, and they've launched their, their rapid test on our device in uh, France and are looking to do the same in, in the UK. So we've been very focused on supporting them and also scaling up our manufacturing to support the, the increasing volumes that are needed for COVID-19 testing globally. Okay, so in... in taking up or chasing or pursuing something involving COVID-19, what happens to your other investment in um, the HIV space? Well, we, we still have contractual commitments to a number of partners, including Mylan Pharmaceutical, who distribute our product exclusively in over 100 uh, countries through that agreement. And, and we've got commitments to them for the support of the uh, products in HIV, so the COVID-19 volume that we're scaling up is in addition to that. So we're very focused on making sure that our HIV business doesn't suffer from uh, the, the, the additional demand for the technology. Okay, so for people who don't fully comprehend how companies like yours work, um, you know, some people said to me, oh, I saw, heard your, your first interview, uh, I've noticed the share price has fallen since that time. What has the market been perceiving um, such that they've marked you down in terms of share price since you and I last talked? Uh, I, I mean, it's, it's difficult to say. I mean, I, I, think, I think some of the in shareholders may have been expecting, you know, weekly or, or twice weekly announcements. Obviously, we're a, a, a medical device company. Some of the lead times are uh, months to get products to market. So I think if, if people are expecting, you know, announcements every week, that, that's not a realistic uh, timeline for a medical device company to, to, to roll out new products and enter into new agreements. 
Mm. We're still very much on track, but but obviously the timeline may be a little bit longer than, than maybe some day traders would like, I think, in terms of uh, announcements. Mm. Tell me this, John, what's it like to be a CEO of a business that is being assessed on a daily basis on the stock market? Does it become a distraction, uh, the fact that you, know, you might think the business is heading in the right direction, but the market is, is not recognising that and, in fact, giving you a little bit of market grief? Yeah, well, I think, I think from, from a Tomo's perspective, we need to stay focused on a longer-term business plan. In our prospectus, we we set out a pathway to to try and become the next Nanosonics, the next ResMed, and that's a, a long-term journey. And I think the fundamentals of the business are very strong. So we just need to stay focused on continuing to deliver for shareholders over the medium term and, and trying not to get too distracted by sort of you know da- daily fluctuations that aren't driven on, on on any news or any fundamentals. Okay. So so what is the the big thing out there that you're hoping materializes over a given time period. Help us understand what sure. it is that you're working towards, which then will be a reflection of the success of your job and, yeah. the, and the fact that the business is starting to you know, deliver on its promise. Yeah, no, well, as we've said before, our number one focus at the moment is scaling up our capacity. We can, can sell at the moment as much as we can make and we will be looking to bring on uh, additional capacity in July and then further uh, capacity upgrades later in the year. So I think delivering them will allow us to then expand our commercial agreements beyond France and the UK uh, so that we can start to roll out uh, in, in Europe and, and across Asia and also look to continue with commercial discussions in, in the US. So we do uh, expect to deliver commercial agreements to market in, in the coming months, but obviously we need the capacity behind that to be able to then deliver product into the market. Has the whole COVID-19 environment actually made it harder for you to, you know, in a sense, capitalise on the opportunity? No, I mean, I think it's done two things for us. One is it's really uh, changed the recognition of, of rapid testing. So from a sort of uh, product perspective, it's really put it in, in consumer and in, in the public's mind. It's also provided a very significant volume opportunity for us and one that I think we would like to be able to deliver on, not just from, from the business perspective, but also to help with uh, fighting a, a very serious pandemic with a product that we think really makes a difference. Mm. Um, a, a lot of people you know, read the, the press release that was put out involving Gates and, um, and Lang Walker. Do you think that's, that it has been a, a problem or a plus for the company? Because in a sense, you didn't get any new money out of that. It was just purely market interest in the company. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we've got we've got a high profile shareholder register and I think those types of names attract a lot of media attention and sometimes that can be really, really positive for a business and sometimes that can generate some background noise. So, you know, I like to stay philosophical about it and think that the quality of our register speaks for itself and the support of, you know, the Global Health Investment Fund and, and those types of organisations over the longer term can only be very positive for us. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I wanted to talk to you because, you know, clearly I understand there can be a great disconnect between what a company's doing. I remember Jeff Bessos saying during the dot-com bust that I think his share price went from $100 to $6 overnight, or virtually overnight. He said, my business hadn't changed one, one iota. People were still buying books and DVDs, which I think he was probably mainly selling in those days. But, yeah. uh, but the market's assessment of the company had changed overnight. 
Yeah, I, I think also that the, the timeline for, for medical device companies might be slightly different to the expectations of some short-term traders. I mean, mm. we, we our supply agreements can range up to 12 years. So we've got very long-term supply agreements and we're building a long-term business. And that's not maybe, you know, for every investor. Some people like more immediate, immediate upside and immediate uh, gratification in terms of the share price. But we're really looking to build a long-term, uh, you know, multinational business. And we think we're we're on the right the right tracks to do that. How unique is your device? Well, we believe it's it's completely unique. It's it's not it's innovative. It's the first in the world to deliver an integrated rapid test solution. Uh, we've got a lot of proprietary know-how and a lot of uh, IP globally. So we feel we're very unique in terms of the technology that we bring to market. And now our focus is to to scale up that that business so that we can be in every in every major global market, including not just infectious disease, but beyond that, you know, consumer health, uh, veterinary, there's a whole range of applications we think we could be a market leader in. And, and how many devices are you selling now? And what is the stretch goal for the organization? Uh, we, the agreement with NG Biotech commits us to delivering for them 2.46 million devices for France and the UK this year. Uh, we're looking to double our capacity by July and then double it again later in the year. So we'll be looking to get up to a very sizable level of volume. And that really is to uh, take advantage of the opportunities in, in Europe and, and Asia and North America, because at the moment, the, the requirements for rapid testing for COVID-19 certainly extend well beyond our, our production capacity. And that's our number one goal now is to expand that. And so is the expectation then, John, that you know, even though we might get on top of the coronavirus in terms of you know, making cities and towns work, the, the fact that it'll be around for a long time means that there's going to be a big demand for your product? Yeah, we, we believe so. I mean, we, we certainly don't think it's a 12-month it's a uh, product. There, there will be, uh, I think, recognition now that there will be a number of waves of infection globally. And I also think there will be an increasing need for people to understand whether they've had exposure to antibody uh, and whether that deliver some sort of immunity. So I think there will be a community testing to see who's been exposed and what level of uh, immunity they may or may not have moving forward. So we see this being a, you know, a three to five year product, potentially even longer, depending on what happens with the vaccine. And so going down the track, let's imagine in five years time, the, the coronavirus is no longer a threat. Is the product going to be adaptable to a new a challenge that might beset the world? Well, very much so. I mean, we, we didn't develop the technology for COVID. Uh, we, we, we pivoted from HIV into COVID within, within 10 weeks. We went from first inbound inquiry to an improved product within 10 weeks. And we've done that previously with other applications and we will continue to expand the, the range of applications on the, on the technology. It's very flexible. We've proven that with COVID-19, we can go from, from, from zero to, to market launch within a, within a matter of months. And we're looking obviously at what's beyond COVID-19 and making sure we can build a robust business that's not dependent on COVID-19 over the longer term. Okay, John, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Well, the markets had a bit of an ordinary day. Started off pretty well, but it's down about 1.8%, Charlie, the local yeah, market, and the futures aren't looking all that great. Yeah, the American futures are quite weak, down between sort of 3 and 4% after an almighty bounce over the last, um, you know, last mm. few months. Mm. Currency, Aussie dollars down a bit too. It's a general risk-off day. Bonds are rallying, oil's down. Mm. Market is clearly concerned about 
the potential for a bit of a second wave of COVID-19. That may be right of some new cases in China mm. and cases picking up in Florida and Arizona. But look, perhaps more, more it's just an excuse for some profit taking, I think, Pete, after an almighty bounce. Charlie, when you get these kind of markets where there's been a lot of enthusiasm in one direction and then a curveball issue like more second wave infections coming in Beijing, are there people who are strong market influencers who can actually take that and help the market go down further than it would well, normally? Let's be clear, this rally from March to you know, a week ago was possibly the most unloved rally by professional investors ever. Mm. Professional investors had gone to very high yeah. cash levels as evidenced by Merrill Lynch surveys mm. and long short funds had very small net positions and quite large shorts. Yep. So it, that rally did not suit most professional investors who degrossed de and de-risked their portfolios maybe March, April. What you did see was a lot of private investors, individual investors, day traders, momentum investors, all jump on the bandwagon mm. of reopening. And all we're really seeing now, and all through that period, there were very prominent investors saying they didn't believe the rally. Yeah. And absolutely, that's fine. But they said it here, 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 here. So look, I think, I think we're just having a little bit of a reality check. I don't think anyone can influence the market individually with their own, own statements. Mm. But the other thing worth noting is there is a, in these down days, and there may be a down night tonight, a decent one, mm. there is plenty of cash around and still plenty of shorts that, that need to be covered. So it'd be quite an interesting night, but it, to me, this may be the next six months. Quite a lot of volatility, swings between you know, hope and hope and failure, or, or we, we're not gonna come out of this. And I think it could be just quite a volatile okay. period. Well, I've gotta say my own personal view is, I, I was a buyer on much lower levels, and I've been holding my power to dry mm. on the basis I thought there'd be another sell off again, and I'm happy to buy stocks, so I'm happy to hold for the next two or three years, at these lower levels. Yeah, look, what I think are you doing, Charles? No, that's the right approach. I mean, these are, these are, we, are buy, we, sh we buy shares in a business yeah. for the long term. We yeah. don't just buy confetti and trade it. That's mm. not us. Others can do that and good luck to them. Mm. We're trying to buy the best businesses we can and hold them for as long as we can mm. and run a concentrated portfolio that will beat the benchmark uh, in the short term and long term. So for me, not that much changes. The activity in our portfolio has been reasonably low. Mm. We've done a little bit of trimming and buying some things that are lagging and still running a reasonable cash level. And we're still running totally unhedged to the Australian dollar because if the world goes to cactus, mm. the dollar will give us some reprieve. And that's, that's what's happening today as well. The Aussie dollar's off a bit. Mm. So to me, it's about just being sensible, sticking to your process, you know, looking at, considering your research approach. And if something gets oversold or cheap, buy it. Mm. Something gets extended, trim it. But I don't... I don't think you're going to add a lot of value to your own portfolio or professional portfolio by trying to chase your tail by trading too much in these circumstances. Okay. Was there a stock that you didn't get into enough when the market went ahead and so you're keeping an eye on that if it does drop to a significant level, you will buy into it or buy well, more to be of it? fair, in March, early March, mid-March, you could have bought just about any stock yeah, in no, the world. No, you so you, you can get a bit of FOMO. To do that. I was fractionally annoyed we had 10% cash on the way up, but that, mm. that was actually quite quite a low cash waiting mm. relative to, uh, to others. That mm. wasn't so bad. Oh, Pete, there's, you know, when you look at the quality list around the world of things you want to own, it's sort of like driving down a good street and seeing some good houses. You can't mm. own all, all mm. of them. Yeah, but, but yeah. the FANG stocks are over, overpriced now, aren't they? Yeah, so, I recently, mm. as recently as a few days ago, we sold out of Facebook, actually. Yeah. We decided that we had all the FANGs and it was probably, they've done very, very well for us mm. and perhaps we could do with one less of them. Mm. So, you know, we have Facebook and Alphabet, but we decided Facebook was to go. So we mm. raised a little bit of cash there. 
Oh, look, there's plenty of businesses, a lot of them in healthcare. It'd be something like, if it was Australian stock, it'd be something like CSL. Mm. We got knocked around. I think there's other good industrial businesses in the world. I sort of regret not buying Boeing at $100, you know, things like that. That's, but that was a gutsy play. It would have been gutsy at the time. But you, you think about monopolies, duopolies, great barriers to entry. There's, there's hundreds of businesses out there I'd, we will look at. Mm. But I think the things I'm probably most interested in are healthcare and sort of consumer staples. And even if it was an Australian stock, you know, something like Woolworths got a bit cheaper, I'd consider that. Mm. You know, just great businesses that are low volatility. But I think, you know, I'm still very reticent to get to, you know, sort of buy deep value for the sake of buying deep value. That's not really our style. And I mm. think that that's not going to necessarily work in an ultra low interest rate environment. But, you know, you know as, we, as we get through this week, you know, we'll, we'll look through our models and there'll be things that come up that we'll have a look at. Yeah. That's Charlie Aitken from Aitken Investment Management.